Brancomalytic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we have with us a very special guest, New South Wales Building Commissioner David Chandler, a man well known to many of our listeners who will talk to us about a range of things including quality of building, cladding and a range of issues that are affecting the New South Wales building sector. In this exclusive interview, David also talks about Project Remediate, which I know will be of great interest to our many listeners. So please enjoy our interview with New South Wales Building Commissioner, David Chandler. David Chandler, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. Thank you very much for uh, talking with us. How are you? Well, it's been a busy week, so I'm actually going to enjoy this conversation. That's good to hear. Uh, David, Jared Reedy, Architecture and Design. Um, I want you to talk me through uh, Project Remediate. There seems to be a lot of uh, fanfare and a lot of interest. Can you sort of run me through the basics? Well, we think it's a good basis to uh, commence this uh, interview because um, it is a unique program. It's not being done the way we're doing in New South Wales anywhere else we know of. So it's New South Wales's response to removing cladding off buildings and uh, and, and with it goes, in fact, a combination of the level of support government can provide to owners' corporations and the amount of work that they have to do to invest in their own um, repair of their assets themselves. So eligible Class 2 buildings in New South Wales, there's about 215 buildings that are eligible in New South Wales to come into the program. Over 150 are already signed up and are involved in the program. What the New South Wales government does is the program wraparound so that, in fact, every project will be done so it, it, it achieves the same outcome. We can't afford to do 200 projects and have them all different. So it's a very consistent, best practice orientated program. In essence, what owners corporations get who come in is they get a 10 year interest free loan to fund the procurement of the remediation of their project. So they pay. Government New South Wales provides a 10 year interest free loan so that in fact, there's a bit of pain sharing, but at the end of the day, the owners' corporations pay for the work that's performed on their job. Um, we've we've decided, designed it so that the customer experience is what's at the foremost of our mind. So a lot of these programs are generally driven by a government, we've got to do it, and we've everybody else has just got to fall into line. We've taken a very, very different attitude here. We've wanted to make sure that as we look back and as owners' corporations look back on this project, they can say that it was truly a customer-centric experience and I can report that yesterday I was out on a job site and I met owners out there and they said, uh, Commissioner, this is really a very, very customer-centric experience for us. We are very, very happy with the way this is going. So hopefully um, all of the others can be like that, but we've now got two, the first two, and that's the experience that's been reported back. Perhaps the most important thing is that at the end of people who come in to Project Remediate, is that they get a Project Remediate Assurance Certificate. Now that is something that we've negotiated with the Insurance Council of Australia that says that we have attained a level of assurance for the buildings in Project Remediate to a standard the Insurance Council will say, well, we have no further residual risk in regard to facades in those buildings. So we've worked very hard to meet all the standards that they require to accept what we will call a Project Remediate Assurance Certificate. So those owners will have no further facade burden in terms of their future insurance policies. At the end of the day, that's what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's, a, it's prevention, is, it, is, it, is really what you're, what, what you're aiming for? Uh, what we're aiming to do in Project Remediate is that um, it's, it, it looks at the wall build-up of the facade. So it's not just simply a program that says, let's take the weatherproof skin off on one side and replace it with something else. We look right through the wall to the point where it connects with the building and we make sure that the wall build-up and the assembly of the wall behind the sheeting on the outside is going to be sustainable. Okay. So we're doing a lot more than people who are just simply taking skin off, putting skin on. We're putting in fire barriers. We're putting back uh, moisture management. We're, we're putting in proper insulation. Uh, we're putting in drainage. 
uh, we're making sure that the previous supports for the facade that were in behind the building or in, in behind the old facades is replaced where it's uh, simply falling apart. We've got many examples of, uh, of facades where we are taking the skin off and we're seeing badly rusted substructure in behind and those, these things are going to fail in the early life of these buildings in the next five to ten years. So we're using this once-off opportunity not just simply to take the skin off, we're, we're actually going to remediate the entire wall build-up so that the wall build-up goes into its life in a way that we can see that it's best practice and it's resilient. I personally wasn't aware of that. Uh, as far as I was aware, that this was just a removable, um, you know, we were trying to remove flammable cladding so we didn't have a Grenfell Tower incident. The fact that you guys are future-proofing these buildings, I think, is, is, is sensational. Um, has, that, has that always been the goal for Project Remediate from the outset? At the very beginning of the business case that I put up to Treasury and the Minister for this project, it was all about if we're going to be providing 10-year loans, then the last thing you want is consumers and their wall systems to becoming disappointing in that 10-year period. So, you know, suddenly they might have got to a point where they were, you know, there was a problem and they said, no, well, we're not paying you money back because we're not happy with the wall. So what we had to do as part of our risk management strategy is not only put back a really great solution for consumers, but we had to put back a solution that was going to be durable over the longer term because the last thing you'd want is consumers becoming disappointed with the remediation that we've done. So that's part of our risk management strategy as well as making sure we do the right thing. At the end of the day, these consumers are counting on us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. What kind of um, figures are we, are we talking about when it comes to project remediate? What do you mean? In terms of cost. Well, the overall program is going to be the capital cost of the works or the, the, what owners corporations will be paying for will ultimately be about $600 million. Okay. But let's put that in context. The average cost per apartment is looking at this stage to be sort of between fifteen dollars and $25,000 per apartment. Okay. So essentially what we're doing is we're funding owners corporations to do about fifteen dollars to $25,000 per apartment of work and repay that money back over 10 years interest-free. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Now, so there'll be some outliers on that, so there are some buildings that have got very complex facade installations and it'll be multiples of that number. But we're, we're down to a point now that we know that there's about 15 or 20 buildings that are going to be outside that range of okay. core cost. And, and so we're now working on what else can we do to try and lower the cost. But the important thing for owners who have yet to come into Project Remediate, and as of today we'll announce that uh, we're extending the date that people who are eligible to come into Project Remediate can do so. We did cut that date off in March, but we're now going to open that up until the 16th of December. So that's first line news you're receiving okay. now. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that now that we can show people what we're doing, we think that there'll be the confusion or the uncertainty uh, can be overcome. So we'd like to see at least another 20 to 50 of the people who are eligible to come into this project to do so, so we'll leave the door open until the 16th of December. Okay. Hmm. All right. Um, that's interesting. That's that, interesting for the future. But let's go back to the past. 2014, I believe. We we haven't seen a lacrosse tower-like scenario in New South Wales, and thank God for that. Um, can you tell me, is that good luck, good design, providence? Um, what, what? Why? Why is that? Well, we've been down and had a look at the Victorian buildings and I don't think they're really much different to the New South Wales building. So I think that, um, I think New South Wales has um, been, I guess, fortunate that we haven't had uh, the lacrosse uh, type experience. Um, there was one other in, in Victoria, I just can't recall the name of it at the moment. But, but you know, these are very, very different uh, fires to the ones that we see flashed up every time this is a news story. The Grenfell obviously is the one that's in front of everybody's mind. Now, that's a very, very different fire circumstance to what happens in, in Australia and certainly in New South Wales. Um, first of all, the risk of flammable cladding was still being discovered at that time. We now know all about it and we know what's risky and what we, we, what's less risky. The wall build-up systems in the UK are different to the wall build-up systems here in Australia. So. We've got a whole wall build-up arrangement where they just had a skin on the outside of the building.
But most importantly, the difference as to why the tragedy occurred at uh, Grenfell was the way the fire was fought. So in the UK, the traditional method of fighting fires is everybody stays in their apartment and you put the fire out and then you exit the people. In Australia, the firefighting rules are everybody out and then we'll put the fire out. Okay. Because saving life is the first thing to do. Now, look, firefighting is, is, a, is a hundreds of years of knowledge in fighting fire. So I'm not going to criticise the UK one, but I'd certainly go for a system where our buildings are anything over three storeys is going to be sprinkled. Um, it's going to have smoke detectors. Um, it's going to have proper egress arrangements. So the way out of these buildings is going to be immediately available to anybody in them. And that's the way fires will be, are always fought in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. For pro buildings that are in Project Remediate, we've gone a long way further than that. So these, are, these projects have been eyeballed by the local brigade in every single instance. We have a backup brigade station for every single building. So it's okay. not just the one that's next to it, it's the one that would respond okay. in the event that they couldn't get to it. And so the level of awareness of the fire um, fighting teams are that they have got build these buildings in their knowledge bank to say, right, well, there's a building we need to pay attention to in the event there's an issue. Now, we haven't had an issue, but for Project Remediate, Fire and Rescue New South Wales come and do a situation analysis on every single building. The, when the work starts, they come back down and have another look and say, right, how is this work going to be done so that in the event that we have to come to this building, we now know how they're going about doing the work. So there's a really good familiarity with what we're, what we're doing. Unfortunately, in the UK, the fire didn't, it wasn't a familiar type fire to them. Mm -hmm. It was fought using a, what we think is an old philosophy of fighting fires. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, in, and if you take lacrosse, big impressive fire, out in no time, yeah. but not one person hurt and everybody out because in Australia, everybody out yeah. is, is goal number one. Mm. Quick question, obviously, you said that the fire service comes out and, and evaluates these buildings before and after. Have they uh, helped you to prioritise what buildings need to be tended to first? Uh, they have, um, to some degree. Uh, we have a, um, a project steering group which Fire and Rescue sit on as do the Insurance Council of Australia. So we involve the key stakeholders, including local government. Local government sits on our steering group as well. So we've got a very close working relationship with them. And, uh, and in the event that they've got any discord or areas of concern, they would come back to us and say, that building there we think needs um, a bit more attention, um, as they did with one building a few weeks ago, where they felt that the the background fire safety systems weren't up to the standard they'd like them to be. So we've immediately corrected that. So they're out looking at these buildings and saying, irrespective of the facade, we saw some things at that building that we would like you to attend to now. And we do that straight away. Um, but by and large, we're, we, we've, we've set a, a profile of buildings to get our way through this in three years. So we've got a bunch of relatively smaller buildings to start off with so that we actually can build the capability because we're teaching this industry how to work differently as well. Remediation in Australia, I don't know what it's like worldwide, but I describe it as the Wild West. Um, and we are teaching the remediation new dance steps. So the contractor that I was on site with yesterday said, Commissioner, we have learned so much through the methodology and the high quality approach you've taken to going into these buildings and preparing to do this work, we've learned a lot permanently for our business. And that was part of the criticism that we've, we've uh, taken here is that, how come we were so slow to start? And I've come to, I've, I've learned over many years that things come out much better if you get set before you go, rather than go and then try and get set. So if something starts well, it's more likely to finish well. Uh, we have a sort of a, a, a bit of a, a joke around the fact that this project's like putting a green ball in the top left-hand pocket of a billiard table 200 times every time, and that every time one doesn't go in, it clutters up the possibility of sinking the next ball. So we actually award our team up here for excellence in their contribution with a green ball. 
just to get everybody realising that the game we're on about here is 200 times green ball in the top right hand pocket exactly the same way every time. So that's why we've taken a little bit longer to get set. I'm very confident we're going to finish at about the same time as everybody else. What I'm even more confident about is the quality of what we're going to achieve. of flammable planning in terms of numbers in New South Wales and, and can I ask this kind of oh, it's, it's, it's a very rough comparison but is, is there is there any, anything that you you've learnt from over the years of the asbestos remediation is, is there something that you could is there something you can take away from that or are they completely different animals look they're very different but I think your point's a good one and that is that we need to constantly be on the lookout for emerging harms I mean, I think a regulator's got to be forward-looking and imagine... I, the reason I ended up in this job was you know, we end, end up with a crisis not to do with planning, but to do with the confidence of the quality of the buildings that were being built in New South Wales. And, and the first thing you do is you immediately try and put your finger in the holes in the dike to say, well, how do I stop that hole and how do I stop that hole? And then there's a point in time where you actually get it under control and then you say, right, how do we make sure we don't ever go back there again? So you start to build a what we call a proactive regulatory capability that looks ahead in this space and says, what's next? So one of the things we would look at as being a bigger issue perhaps than fire, because we'll sort this out, but the longer term issue might be the impact of moisture in behind these facades and mould. Now we know in, in New Zealand, for example, leaky buildings is a good example. Um, and it's similar in a way to asbestos, but. But the leaky building situation in New Zealand ended up as becoming a really bad public health problem. So, you know, the buildings ended up really driving the cost of the national health care up because there were a large number of respiratory admissions in New Zealand as a result of people getting uh, unwell because of the mould in the leaky buildings. Yeah, wow. So we're probably more focused at the moment on making sure these buildings don't have mould in them going forward because taking the cladding off that's just going to be a passing point in time but okay. if we don't get these wall build-ups right and these buildings continue to get um, unmanaged moisture in behind them and the mole starts to build up then potentially we've got a health hazard coming over the horizon so we're looking out for those sorts of things mm -hmm. so okay so getting back to what I initially asked what what kind of numbers are we looking at in terms of where, where, do, where do we stand at, at as of today in New South Wales with, with, with cladding? Well, there's 215 eligible class two buildings right. that have been rated as having uh, higher risk flammable cladding. So there's 215 eligible buildings. Mm -hmm. There's 151 or 152 buildings signed up out of that 215. Okay. Um, of the balance, about 20 to 30 of them have gone about doing it themselves. So they. So they were eligible to come into Project Remediate, but they decided to go down their own path and do it themselves because they felt that, that well, some of the owners' corporations were able to raise the money out of a levy and say, oh, look, let's get on and do it ourselves. Okay. So they didn't want it hanging around. Uh, some people felt that it might be too expensive to do it inside Project Remediate, so they chose to do it themselves. And I think one of the pities about that will be that if they've just simply said, well, the cheapest way to do this is to take that skin off and put another skin on and ignore all of the other things, mm -hmm. the cost of uh, remediation, about 20% of the scaffolding to get to it. So if, if you were going to, it's a bit like having a shower and wasting a wash. Yeah. If, if you fancy putting that scaffolding up and just simply taking that superficial skin off and putting another one on and not fixing all, all the other stuff. So people are starting to realise now that you'd have to do that scaffolding bit again if all of these things became an issue down the track. So we're really trying to get those 20 to 30 buildings that could come in, that haven't yet come in, to say, guys, think about this once-off opportunity to get all of that bit fixed and use that scaffolding wisely once. Might be a little bit more now, but it'll pay a dividend over time. There are some areas also where building owners might want to rethink um looking at the cladding, aren't they? And what would, be, what would be some of those areas and what are your views on that? Well, some of the owners' corporations have uh, toyed with the idea. Some actually 
didn't like the colour choices of earlier developers and decided that living orange um, was probably a fashion statement that was going to pass and so they've gone back to more I guess um, mainstream palette selections um, so that's uh, that's been a choice that owners have done we've 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 required that designers for project remediate to offer owners corporations two design solutions for their building quite different so that the owners have got a choice to say no or well, we'd like to maybe go that way rather than that way so it might be uh, it might be aluminium cladding, it might be fibre cement sheeting, it might be ceramic tiles. We're offering every owner's corporation at least two choices so they actually feel as though they're not just having a solution jammed down their neck. We want to make sure they feel as though we made that choice. Um, and so we've costed up some alternatives. Some owners wanted to have a look and see whether ceramic might have been a, a nicer finish. Because don't forget that in the time that these buildings are built, many of them have doubled in value. So they're suddenly thinking, hey, listen, our building's now in a place that the value of our area has gone up substantially and it doesn't look as good as all the new buildings that are going up now. So is yep. there a once-off opportunity to improve the, I guess, the public perception or the market value of our building? So we've accommodated those things at the edge. Um, not, not a lot, but most of the owners have been responsible because they know that whatever they choose is going to be on, on their account. So yeah. it's kept them on the reservation mostly. <laughs> You've pointed out, right, there are other challenges here and there's a whole, there's a whole, I guess, raft of challenges in terms of, in term, from our magazine, we've seen quality, obviously. Um, there's, there's issues with, um, obviously with the cladding, there's issues with, with as, you, as you point out, mould. Issues with condensation. Is there, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's a long list that, it, that, it, that I don't know of. Can I ask what are the biggest issues? If you if you could if you would um, prioritise them at the moment, um, okay, this project remediate. But what are the, the, the top three? Well, first and foremost is everybody home safe. So, construction industry doesn't have a great reputation for the, uh, the fact that it hurts people. In fact construction industry kills on average one person a week in Australia so you know so we've got at the very top of our list um, everybody home safe now we've we've broadened that is to say to the people working on this job that includes the people who are in the buildings because yeah. these buildings are being remediated while they're occupied so we've had to create a level of consciousness <coughs> and we've actually produced training material that is compulsory to be done by people before they go onto these jobs to understand okay. you need to understand what working with an occupied building is because to some degree you you take the building back to a sort of a semi-construction site by putting yeah. scaffolding up around the outside so we really need to create a very very heightened awareness so at the top of our list at the top of our list is everybody home safe mm -hmm. it's the workers and the occupants of this building so that's number one Number two is, is to get an understanding of what a compliant building looks like. So that is why we've taken such a, uh, I guess, a considered approach to developing what's known as the Project Remediate Pattern Book. Now we have invested quite substantially in this book because what we didn't want to do was to create a standard, but we wanted to provide a practical guide and tools for designers who are going to be doing these buildings. Because across the design industry, there's a quite a lot of variability of capability. And so what we wanted to do was to sort of say, well, how do we raise the tide so that that level of capability has, a, has at least a common um, high tide mark? Now, there'll always be people who are better at it than others, but what we wanted to do was to make sure that no one was gonna do work on these buildings that was below a certain level of, uh, of what we thought enabled us to do the project. So we produced a project remediate pattern book it's the first of its type. It's going to be one of the legacy pieces of this job. Uh, it's already being adopted by universities and they're already taking it into the education program for their engineering and facade students. Um, we want to make sure that we can take every single bit of learning out of this program and codify it in a way that it had a legacy. So this is uh, used very uh, modern technology. You can download all of the documents in this uh, in, in this pattern book using DWG files. It's click, click and drag. Uh, we've created it for, I think, about 12 different facade types. 
So cladding on a on a steel stud uh, framework, cladding on a masonry stud. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got about 12 different typographies that form part of the pattern book. And more importantly, what we're also doing is we're recording what we're finding when we're taking it off. Because an important learning out of this has got to be to say, because if you don't do it right, this is what happens in behind this cladding. So this pattern book is rich with pictures that evidence what we're taking off. So they can say, that's why you want to do it properly because it's not pretty in there behind the pattern book. So consistency, industry capability, and the legacy piece, that's the second big challenge, is to make sure that everybody who wants to get into this project, whether they're a designer or whether they're a contractor, go into it understanding what the expectations are of Project Remediate. Mm -hmm. So then finally is the compliance piece. Issuing a Project Remediate assurance certificate has been designed to be an end-to-end -end process. So in the pattern book, for example, every single component of a facade says this component will be made up of these inputs. Here is the compliance certificates we require for all of those components. Mm -hmm. We have specified all of the compliance certificates that are required for the entire facades, for all the variations of the facades, so that when a designer actually produces the design, they actually draw down the schedule of compliance certificates that will be required. Automatic, everyone, 100% the same. So then we actually embed in the contract of the contractor doing the work, we say, your contract requires you to produce all of those compliance certificates. Mm -hmm. And we have engaged for each owner's corporation, they've engaged them, we've, we've put them, we've created a pool of qualified uh, assurers or certifiers and we've taught them what these certificates must be like. Not just simply take a piece of paper from Fred and put it in the stack. Take a piece of paper from Fred only if you believe Fred and don't you put your fingers on it if you don't believe it. So we've had to create a culture amongst these certifiers to make sure that they absolutely believe every single piece of compliance paper that comes forward because at the end of the day, it's the confidence in the replaced facades that is our mission. We want the owners of these buildings and the insurers of these buildings to be 100% confident that this work's been done properly. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by the pattern book. Um, talk me through the early processes of that and why you guys ultimately decided to create one. When I first went out, uh, Jared, to look at these projects um, while we were designing Project Remediate, what we saw was that um, most uh, procurement models were using design and construct and so that means that they were doing very light touch investigation of the building so you know typically we'd find um, that an owners corporation might spend a thousand dollars and pay a carpenter to come in and lift a few sheets up and have a bit of a look and uh, we've got one example of a project at North Sydney where that happened uh, it was done before Project Remediate was finished and um, and they really spent no more than a couple of thousand dollars having a look under the sheets. And uh, they awarded a contract at uh, just over a million dollars. And because they didn't have a good enough look, uh, their contracts ended up closer to $1.7 million. Oh so that's a bit of a shock that if you, if you don't get set before you go. So we had a look at a range of these projects at the way they were being procured in other states as well as New South Wales. And we formed the view that we must make sure that every one of these building contracts are 100% documented before they start. It's pointless giving part of the documents to a builder and saying, you make up the rest and then go out and try and tender these projects based on the lowest cost price. We needed to make sure that the very first thing we did was to make sure that everybody priced exactly the same thing. We want competitive pricing, but we want everybody to price exactly the same thing. So it was no good going out to tender say, these documents are 70% developed, make up the last 30% yourself and give us a price. Yeah. So we've had 100% documentation for every single project. So we've had to train the designers to do that. And, and that's been a bit of a challenge because it's a long time since anybody's expected designers to do 100% design. So we saw that as a real risk in other, in other places where they were using design and construct. There is no design and construct in Project Remediate at all, 100% documentation, every single project. Mm -hmm. um, 
Speaking of compliance, okay, um, how are uh, residential apartments in particular using the New South Wales Residential Apartment Buildings Act powers showing up the issues identified in the recent inspections on residential apartment buildings in the, Woll- in the Wollongong area? And what results have, have you seen today? Well, over the last um, three years, as I've been building commissioner, um, my role has involved both policy and advocacy and then implementation. Yeah. So it was useful to go back and have a deep dive into Wollongong to say, well, how's this all playing out? Because we're seeing quite a change of dial in many places where I would expect that you would be unlikely to get a leaky bathroom in New South Wales for a building built after the end of 2021. Um, I, I can tell you that um, we've so messaged that out there that um, what, I think we've, we've made developers pull out over 2,500 bathrooms since I've been building wow. commissioner and do it again. So the average cost of pulling a bathroom out before completion is about $15,000 a bathroom and it typically adds three to six months to the project duration. So suddenly developers and builders have realised that if, I, if they get caught with a non-compliant bathroom, it's going to be an ugly experience for them. So the two pieces of legislation are important to understand. The first is the Residential Apartment Buildings Act, which is known as the RAB Act, and that's my Powers Act. So that gives me extraordinary powers to go into projects during construction and after they're finished and issue a range of orders. They can range from a Building Works Rectification Order, a Stop Work Order, or a prohibition order. A prohibition order stops a project getting an occupation certificate until we're satisfied. So we've had a number of those issued. So the RAB Act was an important first piece of the change management and those powers came to me in September 2020. So we had those a year before the Design and Building Practitioners Act came into play. Now the Design and Building Practitioners Act is one that requires designers to do progressive design, so it's okay to have a staged development. So you can develop the design in stages, but you've got to make sure that it's a complete design in every stage. And then all of the designers who are contributing to that stage all have to declare their documents and lodge them on the e-planning portal in New South Wales before construction starts. Okay. Now, let's just give you an idea of the stats here because the stats are really important. Under the Residential Apartment Buildings Act, we've done just over 165 audits. We've issued a range of orders, ranging from prohibition, stop work, building rectification orders, etc. We have intervened on projects now that cover over 18,000 apartments in the RAB Act since we started. We have a huge reach into that, and we don't just do it in a sort of non-discretionary way. Uh, We now have risk tools that are used by our regulator that are, I don't think that anybody has got better risk rating tools. I'm not talking about the ISET rating, I'm talking about how we as a regulator say that's a risky developer and that's a risky builder Mm -hmm. or that's a risky certifier. We have, for the last six months, our, our check on our success for using our risk rating tools is that for the risky players that we've selected, that we are confident that we will find at least three serious defects on over 90% of the projects that we go into. We have achieved that level of um, outcome in the last six months. So when we go into a job, we pretty well now know how many serious defects we're going to discover. Now, under the Design and Building Practitioners Act, we've started auditing the designs in the designer's office. These are the declared designs in the designer's office before work starts on site. We have now stopped three projects in the designer's office. That's before construction started. Okay. Now the message is getting out there. Get this design bit right because your project could get stopped in the designer's office. We didn't even go to the job site. Mm. We said, if there's any activity on the job site, stop it because as far as we're concerned, you're not good to go. So, so far under the DBP Act, which stood up in September last year, we've just completed 35 audits there. Uh, We can report that um, only um, something like 15% of them were unacceptable. 
and the rest were amber or green, so they just required minor improvements to the drawings. But again, at this at this stage, we've we've audited the designs affecting over eight thousand apartments. Now, in New South Wales next this coming year, we will start about fifteen to sixteen thousand apartments. By the end of this year, we'll have audited designs for ten thousand apartments. That's over half of the number of apartments in New South Wales that will start in the coming year have had a design audit. Now this is really front end stuff. This is not how do you sort of try and fix it up at the end where all the mistakes have been made. How do you avoid the mistakes in the first place? We're getting extremely positive feedback from the designers who are saying for the first time, our design work is now being respected. We actually got the builders working with us to say, now come on guys, you've got to get this right because you may not get through the audit if you don't get it right. So they're getting things that result. So a good example is that on one job that we stopped, <coughs> the architect's drawing said we were looking at the falls in the basement for the drainage in the basement. Mm -hmm. On the architectural drawings it said for the falls in this area refer to the engineer's drawing. Now we go to the engineer's drawing and it says on the engineer's drawing for falls in this area refer to the hydraulics drawings. So then we got to the uh, hydraulics drawings and guess what's on the hydraulics drawing? For falls refer to the architect's drawings. Yep. Okay so we don't have that very much anymore because okay. many architects don't like that story being told about them. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And now back to our podcast. There have been growing calls um, from a number of sectors, not just architects, for architects to be a lot more involved in, in class one building design and also build. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think that's actually practical? Look... You need to understand that class one has essentially been about project homes. Yeah. Now, project homes have been the enabler for people to buy a home. And the reason for that was that they were able to go to a project home builder and select a project home design of their choice and the builder would give them a fixed price to build that home on their land with only the variation related to site costs, so ground conditions, yeah. those sort of so a project home design is one that says, pick that home in a display village, land that home on your site, and all you've got to pay for is the site costs. Mm -hmm. And then you're able to have a fixed priced building contract to get your home built. Now, look at the proposition that the purchasers then face with. Most purchasers don't have a big deposit. So, you know, depending on the cycle, deposits of 10% or 5% even, have become the norm. Yep. So if the banks are going to sign up to loans to borrowers who've got only say five or 10% equity, the last thing they need to do is to see them signing up to contracts where the end cost of the house is going to be a wild card. Yep. Now project homes solve that problem because while you may not like the box or the outcome every time from an architectural point of view, yep. um, the reality is that project homes have been the great enabler for people to buy their first home. Now, in class two buildings, you've got the same proposition. A purchaser can put a 5% deposit or a 10% deposit down on an apartment, and they know what they're going to get because it's a fixed price contract. So you need to understand that we have to focus on what's the transaction that the consumer can navigate not what might be the architectural um, aspirational judgment of that. Now, I think that the project home industry could have paid much more attention to the urban outcomes and perhaps they'd become a bit overpossessed with the cookie cutter type approach. <coughs> I'm very optimistic that as we go into the next year or two, this, I think we'll see a much better relationship between design and build, but Many designers do not understand the principles of volume building. You've, with volume building, you've got to do the same thing again and again and again, because the only way that you can engineer and manage cost 
is to make sure that you do the same thing again and again. So I think we'll see a bit more fusion of that conversation as we move into um, low density housing on say brownfield sites, which is the second use of sites as opposed to the greenfield sites, where you're gonna see maybe instead of up to 25 to the hectare in the greenfield sites, you're gonna see 35 to the hectare on the brownfield sites. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're gonna see is a much greater uh, association of design and volume building occurring in that frontier. But I think designers are gonna to have to get down off their high horse and move away from this idea that most of them think their designs are precious, that they're, they're IP, they're designed for one-off one use, not multiple uses. So they see the multiple use design syndrome as an anathema. Well, they're gonna to have to step down off that high horse because they're doing society uh, a disservice by having that position. It's a very good point you make, and I actually think that, that there are a lot of architectural bodies, in particular, even the Institute, that are more than willing to help us with these affordable housing issues and, uh, and the housing shortages that we have. Um, if there was anything that you could say to sort of the architectural bodies, you know, to get them off that quote-unquote high horse, what would it be? Oh, look, I think uh, many of them are dismounting because they see that they've got a role in society that's actually got to meet society's needs. and. Um, you know, if, if, if their attitude towards making buildings is so precious that it's going to sort of become a barrier to ownership or affordability, I think you've probably only got 30 or 40% of architects who are so locked into this high horse syndrome. Um, I think by and large, most architects and designers now fully get it. Um, and I'm seeing much more of that design process going on where designers know what the cost of construction is. That's a big step forward is for a designer to know what the cost of construction is and what the implications of it are. I mean, if you just use an example, um, Procor, who provide building technology, have estimated through research that about 12% of the cost of construction is in fact wasted on rework. Wow. So when people tell me that, you know, the Design and Building Practitioners Act or doing things right and getting set before you construct is in fact red tape and burdensome. I say, but what about the 12% you guys chew up simply because business as usual is so poor? Yeah. So Procore makes some very good points about that space and so I think there's an opportunity for parties to collaborate. So if I go back to the beginning of my career, I started on the tools as a carpenter with A.W. Edwards. So um, my first experience was at A.W. Edwards in their estimating office pricing the buildings that we were building. And the chief estimator threw me a set of drawings on the first week I was there and said, have a look at these drawings and tell me if there's anything about them that's going to affect the cost. So I puddled over these drawings for all that week and he called me in on the Friday afternoon and he said, okay, what do I need to know? And I said, well, I don't know, they look all right. And he said, well, let me give you your first lesson. He said, we work with designers, this is back in, late 60s, early 70s, when that mature, respectful relationship of designers and builders worked, mm -hmm. um, that if they had a, a, a novice architect in their office who didn't understand what the difference between half bricks and whole bricks were, that in fact um, they'd learn the hard way when the estimator came back and said, well, whoever drew this up didn't understand that they should use a brick rod and it would be really good to just simply design the house using whole bricks and half bricks so that you didn't have cut bricks and you yeah. didn't have a waste because we charge a surplus of 15% per square metre on top of our brick laying estimate <laughs> based on designers who don't use half bricks and whole bricks. Mm. So he said, so I've looked at this design, he said, and it doesn't pass the test, so I'll show you what we're gonna do. So I'm gonna ring the architect at the, at the office that those drawings came from and say, Hey Fred, um, your young designer didn't quite get the message mate, we're going to have the drawings delivered, Dave's going to drop them over this afternoon on the way home and he might pick them up on the way to work on Monday morning if you could get your designer to just go back and pull them all into line, half bricks and whole bricks. And as it would p pass, the designer would say, of course, of course, what a waste, because they were conscious of doing stuff wastefully. We've gone through a period of time where waste doesn't seem that important. And so what we're seeing is on the job site is these 
huge heaps of waste. And one of the things we've been doing is working with the designers who are absolutely 100% on board, is to saying, guys, it's not about recycling what comes off the process of making a building. It's not about recycling that because that's waste you've made, that's carbon you've already put up yep. in the air. What you need to do is to go back and look at when you put the line on the piece of paper for the first time, is you've got to be thinking about half bricks, whole bricks, and everything else in between to make sure that you are not the generator of wasteful construction. The good, the good story about uh, Project Remediate is that um, we have embedded uh, recycling of the cladding that we're taking off as part of the procurement process, and we've got a preferred recycler that all builders have to send their stuff to, at no cost, by the way, because we're sending all the volume to one place and we've been able to negotiate that that doesn't cost any more than taking ordinary waste away. We're going to achieve more than 90% recycling of all of the aluminium off Project Remediate. And we know exactly where it's all going. We know where all the fixings are going. The only thing that's a problem in recycling is secondhand insulation, because uh, it's full of mold and it's dirty and there's not much you can do with it other than tie it up and put it into products that might go into a garden bed, but even that's not that great. But we know where everything's going. We know what plastic components are going to feed into car stops. We know exactly where the aluminium grindings are going. Uh, as it turns out, I didn't know until I was told, but the aluminium actually gets ground up into very fine pellets and becomes an additive to making steel. So 100% uh, of the aluminium that we take out of Project Remediate will be ground up into pellets that will go into steel. Mm -hmm. So we're very conscious of all of these things that are about our changing world. We've got to be far more conscious because globally the construction industry uses about 30% of all of the natural resources that are yeah. taken out of the earth every year. 30%. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Now if we could actually reduce the byproduct of all of our work by 20 or 30%, <coughs> we would take less out of the ground than perhaps we need to take out and we'd be sending less off to landfill. You spoke about the, um, the beginning of your career. So let's, let's, let's fast forward. The, the day that you walk out, out of this office and you flick, the, flick off the light switch for the last time, what is the one thing that you would look back on uh, that would make you most proud? I think there's a couple of observations. Um, the first is that from day one I was a, a passionate practitioner in this industry, so I guess that passion has driven me to be a high achiever. So being a recognised high achiever has allowed me to always get my hands on the very best projects. So I'll look back and say that I've got a history of, I think, the very best projects and no doubt being the construction director on the new Parliament House project in Canberra was a highlight. But there's been many, many really great projects that I've had my hand on over the years. So if you become an enthusiast, a driven practitioner for excellence in this industry, you will get to look at the very, very best projects this industry's got to offer. I look back on my time in the industry and say, wow, I've had my hand on some of the very, very best projects. Now with that goes that you get to meet some of the very, very best people in this industry. So my early meetings with people like Sir Albert Jennings, who, who was the founder of Jennings, Sir John Holland, who, in, who was the founder of John, John Holland Corporation, um, Alda Jurgula, who was the architect on the New Parliament House project, well, I have been privileged because of the projects and the, I guess, my attitude to this industry to actually meet the very, very best ethical and applied practitioners that you can meet. So I'll look back on that and say, you know, wasn't it a privilege to meet all of those people? And frankly, they've all had a progressive um, and profound impact on the way I live my life. And I mean, it'd be pretty hard to go past someone like Albert, Sir Albert Jennings, who, um, when I, at one stage, I did a insolvency workout for a housing company called Pioneer Homes, and they were building about 1,200 homes a year. And I did a, um, a, a, a research project just to find out 
what was the likelihood of a customer to consider Pioneer Homes as one of the three that they might decide to actually build their house with? Mm. And so we went out and asked that question for a big cohort of people that were thinking about buying a project home. And we found that 65% of people would include Jennings in their three. The very next player down was Mervac at the time, yeah. 15%. Wow, that's a big jump. Pioneer Homes, 3%. Okay. So what we had to do was to really work out how do we change our brand and our value proposition to sort of try and capture a bit of ground back from just Mervac would have been good, but how do we even go after the Jennings Corporation? So you learn a lot from these people and, they, and, and there's a, a lot to translate. So look, um, as I close the door on this, and by the way, this role of Building Commissioner is not the last thing I'm going to be doing. I'll finish up at the end of next year as Building Commissioner, but there's plenty of other things to do. Potentially national harmonisation could be something that we might do because what we're getting a call from is a lot of people saying, gee, Commissioner, what you've done in New South Wales has been really great at helping us reset our business rules in New South Wales, which we're actually starting to emulate in other states. But wouldn't it be good if doing business in all the states in, New S in Australia was consistent? Because at the moment it's different in Victoria and Queensland, yep. Western Australia. So I'm interested in a piece of work in that space. So the book won't close entirely. But um, I, j I just want to look back and say, have you made a difference? And, uh, and I think maybe I'd be able to say that I've made a difference. And what might be the ingredients of that? Well, I think I'm authentic. So I think that um, I am what I people would judge. I think I'm authentic. Um, I think I'm driven by outcomes. So I've always set myself a goal. Don't, don't write what this looks like in a soft sentence. Tell me exactly what it means when you count the numbers. Mm. And at the end of the day, I'm, I think I'm accountable. And, uh, and if you're not accountable, um, then, then you don't really have a reality check on why, you, why you've got the control. So authenticity, measurement, accountability, and I'd like to think that if I shared with anybody what they might take out of my journey through this industry is be authentic, make sure you know what it looks like when you've achieved whatever you're trying to achieve, and make sure you understand that you've got to be accountable. Beautiful. All right. Thank you for your time, David. Um, I appreciate it. The New South Wales Building Commissioner, David Chandler, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, and uh, hopefully it's of interest to your listeners. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Music.